Welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And at Altamar, every other Friday, we navigate together the high seas of global politics. Today, navigate is really the right word because we're going to explore the seas, the land, the skies of global travel and its impact on countries, industries, and the environment. And we're going to try to figure out if leisure travel or business travel are going to be the winners or losers, and we'll be joined later by Celine Fornado, a travel expert and analyst at UBS in London. Mooney, I got to tell you, I'm so itching to travel, and I know we all are, and as vaccines become readily available, I feel like almost a child asking myself all the time, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, you know, one thing that caught my attention recently was that Europeans seem to have almost a sharper view of whether we're there yet or not than we do in America or in Latin America or in Asia, because I was struck by the fact that Britain's government recently published this report called A Roadmap Out of Lockdown. It detailed the plans to lift all restrictions by midsummer. And needless to say, the UK's roadmap gave the travel industry this enormous reason to cheer Because after the report's publications, Britons literally flocked to travel websites and started booking away their summer plans. And according to TUI Airways, which is a formerly Thomson Airways, a British charter airline, summer booking saw a 500% increase. And EasyJet, the low-cost carrier in Europe, said that flight bookings took off by 337% percent compared to the week before. So, Muni, are you dusting off that swimsuit? Oh, Peter, I'm not ready to talk about swimsuits just yet, but I am ready to get out of the house. I'm very um, eager like you to, to continue traveling and seeing family overseas, but I'm actually now going pretty close and renting a house in North Carolina for the week. The swimsuit is in the suitcase ready to oh go. My God, I'm so- already jealous. Obviously, for the industry, Peter, the losses are staggering. The travel industry shortfalls could amount to 2.8% of world GDP or more. And I've, I found these numbers from UNCTAD very conservative. Full ex- recovery, whatever the Brits say, is not expected until 2023. Shutdowns, closed borders, grounded planes empty hotels. This was a story of 2020 and also has been the story, sadly, of 2021. If you look at the numbers, the U.S. led the pack of travel losses, followed by Spain, which was a huge, as you know, tourist destination and has backpedaled 50 years in the number of tourists that have visited the country. France, Thailand, Italy, whose economies also rely heavily on travelers, were not far behind. And there's postponed events like the Tokyo Olympics that left Japan hard hits and big, big countries like Australia, Mexico, and especially, and this is a lot of sad stories about Caribbean nations totally dependent on tourism that saw their GDP plummet and now are on the brink of bankruptcy. They have no other industry to sustain them. So the UN estimates that at least 150 million tourism industry jobs are lost or at risk around the world. The numbers are very, very sad. Okay, so I'm like Mr. Optimism here because I I know that the numbers are dire, but there are some bright spots and and some key lessons. New trends, destinations, and behaviors have emerged that may change the face of the industry forever. And we're going to try to break those down for you today and to get some perspective. And we've talked about tourism in the traditional sense, but look, travel today encompasses so many other categories, whether it's business or convention travel or 
e ecological travel or sports travel, even religious travel. And there have been some unlikely saviors and smart tactics that have kept people like the hotel industry alive unexpectedly by repurposing quarantine facilities, extra housing for students needing to social distance, first responders moving around countries and delivery personnel suddenly swamped by online orders. So you've seen things like empty rooms from slim businesses and conventional travel now totally transformed into vacation destinations for nearby families looking to get away, even if it's only for a day or two in a nearby ski holiday or visit to a local landmark. There's a well-known boom in platforms like Airbnb and VRBO offering private homes, not in cities, but actually in rural areas, which I, I just find there people are reinventing the word travel today. I think there's a lot of creativity in the market and a lot of people struggling, but there are obviously some bright spots. Uh, one bright spot for the air travel industry has been a gigantic set of government handouts that have kept the planes in the air. Um, yet struggling for new routes as top countries are closed is not easy. And many of them are now rerouting the big jets that um, usually go to Europe into sunny Mexican beaches. You may have heard of many travelers to Cancun lately, and it is pretty packed now in the spring. But more lasting and positive trends are worth a new look. The crisis deepened global behaviors like the use of technology beyond just digital check-in and logistics for planes and hotels and into the use of apps for accommodations, contactless service, and other trends like heightened environmental concerns have multiplied interest in ecotourism, especially in developing countries. Also, carbon-friendly untapped destinations and sustainable forms of transportation and accommodation. We'll hear a little bit more about that later. Rail electric buses may experience a boom, although people are still a little hesitant to ride. And temporary measures such as the rise of so-called digital nomads, which is people that leave their home and work from anywhere. There's other cool trends like the explosion of cuisine tourism, a newfound obsession with privacy in luxury travel. All these may be here to stay. They're not just COVID-related anymore. They've transformed cities, air routes, pricing. The entire sector is standing on its head. You know, the issue of digital nomads, Muni, I, I met somebody the other day who is a economist and he's moving to Mexico City for a month because he got an Airbnb and he's just going to live in Mexico City and be an economist in Mexico City. It's amazing, this thing. But I, let's take a, another look at this from the point of view of young travelers and what they want to do. And that's what Teas Take is going to be all about today. This is Tea Stake, and I'm Tea Ivanovich. The conversation among my generation right now is focused on responsible travel. And many are inspired by activists such as Greta Thunberg and criticize the choice to travel by air. It's a new trend called travel shaming. And it's based off of the Swedish word flikskam. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, some believe that it could wreak havoc on airlines and, and air travel in general. And even before COVID, there was a survey of Americans and Europeans that revealed that one in five were already flying less amid concerns of climate change. And nearly a third of respondents said they would weigh limiting air travel in the future for environmental concerns. I mean, of course, I agree that we need to curb emissions and that climate change is future generations' single most important threat. But I'm not convinced that shunning travel is the solution. Sure, we can curb some of our flights by taking the train that is in Europe, China, or Japan. 
or making some of our meetings virtual. But I can't help but ask, I mean, why is the criticism only of commercial airlines? How about other forms of travel, like private planes, which produce less carbon emissions, but they're much less efficient per capita? Or what about cars, trucks, and cruise ships? I mean, for years, we've been talking about the poor environmental record of cruise companies, and yet there isn't a movement called cruise shaming. I mean, I think we should put it all into a larger context. All transportation accounts for 14% of global greenhouse emissions, and only 2 to 3% of that number are flights. And a fraction of emissions that compared to fossil fuels and the industries and agriculture as well. And, and what about the benefits of travel? I, for one, am a huge proponent of cross-cultural experiences, exploring different parts of the world, meeting people on the other side of the planet, new cultures and new languages. I mean, I lived in seven countries before the age of 21. And so my life's motto really is Mark Twain's quote, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow mindedness. So I want to hear what you think. Are you flying less because of the climate change impact on aviation? Let us know at Altamar Podcast. Taya, thanks for that. It was sort of fascinating to take a look at this from a um, view of how younger people are really taking seriously the issue of how do you become green, but at the same time, how do you explore the world? And we're going to come back to that more in our interview. Our guest today is Celine Fornado, Managing Director and Head of European Industrials Equity Research at UBS Securities, which she joined after Bank of America Merrill Lynch, where she was also Managing Director and Head of Aerospace and Defense Equity Research. Celine is an aerospace engineer and a frequent commentator on industry's topics. Welcome, Celine, to Altamar. Thank you, Muni, and thank you for having me. So let's start with a very general question. What do you think travel will look like at this time next year? And what does the future hold for hotels, airlines, Airbnbs, cruise lines, tour operators, the whole kind of gamut of, of travel? I can imagine it can be different for each sector, but in general, who do you think are the winners and losers? Yes, I've tried to think of a common uh, image to describe on how it could look like. And I think there is an element of a taste of freedom, getting out of prison where you, could, uh, where you couldn't access any experiences or services for more than a year. And I think that's the feeling that people will have when we come out of this. And, um, and I think the US, uh, where, where you are where based, uh, is providing us with a good insight even over the last um, you know, couple of weeks in terms of data on where we are, once you have higher level of vaccinations and how we can give back passengers the confidence to travel. And, uh, and what we see is that in the US, we have significant positive developments in terms of travel and travel demand for domestic travel, which is now basically at two-thirds uh, of pre-COVID levels, so it's going back pretty fast. And in terms of international demand, uh, it's coming back gradually, and it's mostly at the moment to Latin America and uh, the Caribbeans. So I think the leisure market dynamics, and it's true for air, and it's true for sea, uh, or even for, for train, uh, will return faster. I think the bigger shift is going to be more on corporate travel, which will remain a headwind for international hotel brands, business centers or business city centers, and air travel in general. So next year, same time, I really hope that I will have done 
a couple of leisure trips, right, within Europe, maybe one venturing even to the US. But I think from a corporate travel point of view, it probably just be the beginning of international uh, or longer haul corporate travel returning. Celine, we've seen some COVID trends, uh, the use of technology, sustainability, traveling nearby, uh, a, a drastic change in the way we work. What new travel trends do you think are going to become permanent? Yes, I think we will definitely not lose some of these uh, habits that we've gained through um, you know, the Zoom or the, the calls and engaging with people without having met them necessarily regularly. Uh, but I think to forge new relationships, you have all sorts of articles that have been written. The, the physical contact uh, will remain uh, a prevailing uh, way of interacting. And I think the Zoom and, and the calls and this new way of working will come as a complement uh, and it will enable to develop new business relationships. Now, what clearly will also be part of this um, broader uh, shift in certain developed markets, for example, will be the um, balance between work from home and back in the office. And um, we, we see that there is some, some places that will never go back fully physically in the office, but others are looking at three days a week. And so that would also potentially enable you to have um, more uh, times to commute from further geographies uh, and empower more regional centers uh, away from large, big cities. So what you could do is stimulate more local air traffic or local train traffic, um, maybe you know even four or five hours away, and you just come into your office, I would say, um, you know, for those three days that, that you need to be to be around. So you could have a development, I would say, of regional travel. Uh, and commuting in between smaller communities. Uh, that would be important. The other thing that I would say is that probably the premium offer, premium class, premium travel, premium hotels, probably will have to change and adapt to some of these new requirements where technology is going to become absolutely you know, a, a re high requirement. And finally, the airports are probably going to see also uh, some transformation. Uh, I'm thinking a lot in the Asian and, and, and the European you know, hubs or, or international airports, but also potentially in the big ones in the US, where you, know, you may have slightly less international um, you know, shoppers uh, on your air side. So you may want to develop a bit more the ground side so that people could just pop into the airport to do some shopping. We've started to see that into some airports in, in Europe, for example, trying to drag people from, I would say, the town to come and shop at the airport like a shopping mall. Celine, let me, let me move um, our conversation to, you, you made some remarkable predictions last April about the redefinition of essential travel. You know, at that point, the virus was just beginning to spread and the UBS shared a report that the use of high-speed trains could lead to zero growth in air traffic between European destinations for a, a good time to come, and that governments should be keen to invest in high-speed rail in Europe, given their commitments to net-zero carbon emissions. So how does the green issue and the travel issue intersect? 
Absolutely. Uh, and I think this is a trend that uh, hasn't gone away. And if anything, um, what we see, Peter, is that with uh, COVID, the European Commission has actually used that in a way to, to maintain a clear focus on you know, the Green Deal and investment in, among other things, green transport, green energy. And, uh, you know, the, the, the stimulus of 750 billion from Europe, we've got nearly 150 billion that is being uh, directed to high speed train lines, uh, upgrades, uh, not a lot of new lines, it's mainly extensions or increase um, frequency. And also we have 3 billion uh, that are directed for green aviation, R&D and research on top of uh, you know, really starting and moving ahead on building the green hydrogen network infrastructure. So I think that um, this has really given a new impetus and, uh, and COVID has not been used as an excuse to step back, on the, on, really on the contrary, for probably the first time in an economic downturn. I think pre-COVID, you had some sort of a sense of fatigue on travel um, in some countries. Uh, we saw, you know, the epiphany of of, of that in Sweden uh, with with Greta, where really um, traffic was really slowing down. But we could see a, a pickup of realization among consumers, and we've done this research now for um, more than two years, uh, where France, Germany, US, and even the UK, uh, we had basically twenty twenty five percent of the people that we surveyed that were saying, well we have reduced their travel by one or two flights on environmental concerns, or we are really thinking about it. And when we did our first survey, it was more like in the mid-teens, and we were starting to hit the 25-30% uh, in, uh, in some countries. Uh, however, I think now, in a, in a post-COVID world, uh, over the next few years, I think the passengers will consider air travel as a as necessary. It's not like an extra trip because you're really back to visiting your family, visiting your core friends, and probably mental health, you know, uh, issue as well. So we're not into that excess mode. It will take a while uh, before we go back to it. But I think in Europe uh, and also in China, there's been a real sparkle in terms of having train and plane cooperating rather than being in a confrontational mode. And I think this is very important. So we're, we're lucky to have a aeronautical engineer as our guest today. So let, let me ask you, I, I was struck by a recent advertising I saw of KLM talking about how to fly responsibly. I mean, it, almost as if they're cannibalizing their own passengers. So in terms of the airline production, are can airliners be made in the future? Because I've read that Boeing said that they're going to start developing biofuel-powered airplanes. Does the airplane industry have the technology to respond to this green resistance or the, the resistance of passengers to travel more? Can technology provide an answer to that? Well, I'm a resolute optimist. So I definitely think that if you think about the aviation industry, which has always searched to reduce weight of its planes in order to reduce the fuel consumption to make airlines fuel bill lower, will ultimately crack this green aviation problem. 
However, it will not be a single technology. There is no one size fit all, uh, and it will need to be adjusted on the size of the plane. So how long you fly for, uh, how many, how much weight you carry, uh, and also. Uh, there is different time frames. This, this is um, a very safe, uh, focused industry. Uh, you know, safety is a primary focus, and it will take time to develop some unconventional technologies. And um, and I think what we have is different steps. And over the last year or so, we really see the big actors of the industry having come out with a common voice and set up a roadmap. Now, this roadmap extends up to 2050, but I ultimately believe that we can decarbonize by 2050. And actually, in Europe, I would argue that it's going to come faster. And this is what we articulated in our research. And I do think that now the regulation is really going to support this. It's picking up fast in Europe, but with the support of the Biden administration, right? it will facilitate to implement this regulation on a global basis. Uh, and that will happen faster than in the previous decade, where maybe it took 10 years to implement a carbon offsetting scheme. Uh, but I bet on the use of biofuel, it will happen sooner because both US and Europe will want to get there. However, you know, biofuel is an intermediary step. It cannot be, um, you know, there isn't enough uh, volume uh, to 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 fuel uh, all the planes um, that that and all the volumes that we need, we think you could have ten percent um, of of uh, of the airplane tanks uh, worldwide filled with biofuels in in ten years. So that's good, right? Uh, but we need something else, and and the something else come from technology, so more efficient engines and potentially a redesign of the airplanes and the engines, uh, and that takes us into the next decade. Um, however, we've seen on smaller platforms, uh, under 20 seaters, a lot like a boom in terms of research for hybrid electric planes, electric planes. And, and if you think about this commuting more intra-community societies that, that we could have uh, on the back of this COVID and new work from home practices, you, you could actually have a bit of a rebirth in this um, uh, intra-regional uh, flights and commutes with hybrid electric or, or uh, electric planes. Celine, let's take a, a step back and, and look at the hospitality industry in general, uh, including hotels and Airbnbs and, and travel both by air or by land or sea. It seems today that hotels and, and the industry in general has made some significant gains in adapting to the current reality and possibly to what is to come. But still, travelers seem to have less choice, higher prices, and more difficulty in trying to, to leave their homes for either business or, or leisure. How should the industry work together and perhaps with governments to make travel easier under these uncertain times? Yes, uh, I think, Muni, the, the, one of the, the first things clearly needs to be uh, you know, a vaccination uh, program that, that reassures everyone and if you need to update the vaccination every year and whatever it takes from a, from a, a government, uh, I would say communication and convincing all the communities. So that's the first thing because that's what creates uh, restrictions in between uh, travel or fear 
to go into another region, right? That creates anxiety, even going into uh, an airport, right? Where you say, okay, how am I going to go with all these people around me? Uh, and how do I know that they're all safe? So we see that, for example, some airports are trying to limit, you know, how many people can get in and, and that probably could stay, right? Because you will have an experience of the travel that will be more and more touchless, right? Contactless. Uh, and you will be able to do some of the, uh, even the check-in at, at, the, at the hotel, etc., so that you have less and less interactions from that point of view, that should be reassuring. However, we do see structurally, you know, 20% of corporate travel that will not come back. And that chunk is mainly coming from uh, internal meetings because we see that uh, the spending for client-facing or conference, which accounts for the majority of the travel budgets globally, uh, will come back uh, when you are in a safer environment or when the conventions restarts. So these two pockets are well protected, but things that are linked to internal uh, meetings um, might be a bit more taken over by Zoom. So I think if there is any opportunity to try and somewhat get those uh, those those people back in for from an internal meeting point of view, that would be uh, that would be welcome because that is really what is uh, what is at risk, right? But I think some of the uh, hotels they will be able to, you know, flex uh, their business model by, again, adapting into uh, slightly more smaller business centers rather than just pure business rooms, right? These are some of the models that we see. I mean, just as a, a, a you know, in every downturn, you look after the GFC, the global financial crisis, for the airlines that had, for example, the biggest exposure to banks, it took them 10 years to recover the levels of business class that they had. So it takes a long time. And with COVID, it's more that it's, that it's a global reset that we've got. Celine, let me ask you a very broad last question, which is talk to us a little bit about the geopolitical aspect of which countries have gotten it right, which countries have done less well, and who are going to be the big winners and losers in terms of travel? Because we haven't talked about Asia. Asia has provided a huge jump in the travel industry over the last 10 years, in particular China. So to talk, give us a, give us a broad swath of how you see the geopolitical aspects playing out on, in, the, in the travel industry. I think uh, that's a very uh, important aspect. And I think it's still very early days to judge, right? Because it feels that this COVID is a marathon <laughs> rather than a sprint. And, uh, and I think first and foremost, it relies on these vaccination programs. Uh, they seem to be determinant for the reopening of routes, of exchanges, and could accelerate some of the relationship that you thought would be forgotten. They may come back faster, right? Uh, if you think, for example, I mean, Israel and Greece, you know, reopening uh, travel and, you know, uh, yeah, who would have said that, right, would be one of the first ones. And I think the what we see is that the three big regions, such as China, Europe or US, they've all had big stimulus to support infrastructure spending, right? And I think this is very important because longer term, this is what will provide choice to travelers. And you will have an electric grid to plug in your electric car if that's what you want. 
you can have your choice uh, to travel by air or by train, right? And China and Europe clearly really work on this complementary connection uh, between air and train. And I think this is something that we will see more and to the benefit of uh, of a business passenger, for example, or uh, of any, um, I would say, more regional developments, uh, because you don't need to be in the hotspot next to the airport region. You could now be three, four hours apart from it, and you could still have an economic uh, development. So I think this is also um, very important. But I guess for now, you tend to associate the winners with those that have had um, the most successful vaccination uh, programs. But medium-term infrastructure spending, I think, remains a very important angle. Celine Fornado, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Pleasure to have you. Peter, that was a great kind of holistic look at the industry that actually left me pretty optimistic. So right now I am ready to dust off my bathing suit and and head over to some spring destination really soon. Maybe you should stop by an airport and do some shopping. I loved this notion of airports turning into shopping malls because they don't have enough planes taking off. One thing that struck me was the whole issue of the winners are going to be those who vaccinate, but those who invest in infrastructure. And the U.S. is so far behind on the infrastructure debate that it just makes what is happening right now in Congress all the more important because Asia and Europe have really invested in transportation in infrastructure. Don't forget to look us up in your platform of choice and give us feedback and Altamar podcast on what you think of this episode. Thank you for joining us. 